Julie and I started working on this book to say, you know, figure out how can we share some of these lessons so we don't have to relearn them the hard way. A lot of lives have been lost uh, when we learn these hard lessons in aerospace applications, for example, um, when similar technology was deployed for the first time. You know, that was our, our mission was to try to share um, these insights and try to help the consumer industry not make the same, you know, not fall into the same traps. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, transportation reporter at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association, the co-host of the No Parking Podcast, and occasionally of Argo AI, but not representing them on this podcast. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the communications director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And um, guys, I'm I'm quite excited about uh, today's conversation. Um, we are joined by someone who I've been looking forward to. <clears throat> I mean, we've spoken before, but looking forward to do a, a, an Atonicast episode uh, one-on-one with, or three-on-one, I guess, in this case. Um, but uh, uh, Laura Major is the, the Chief Technology Officer at Motional, which is the joint venture between Aptive and Hyundai. Um, they're, they, you have definitely, there's no way you have not heard about the things that they've been up to over the last uh, year or so. And uh, she is also one of two, at least two published authors in uh, the upper management at, at Motional. Um, and uh, I, I just purchased her book. So I'm very excited to read it. Laura Major, welcome to the Atonicast. Thanks so much, Ed. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And thanks for the book purchase. <laughs> I hope you like it. <laughs> we authors have to stick together. That's right. And what, the other author you're referring to, are you referring to Carl's book of poetry? Uh, so I've only read his short stories, okay. I've, but, I, but I own his novel. I just haven't oh. had the chance to read it. Mm. Nice. Uh, do you want to um, tell the audience the name of the book? So if they too want to buy it, they can? A little one better. And I will ask Laura to just tell us a little bit about her, her book. Sure. Yeah. So the book is called What to Expect When You're Expecting Robots. It's about the future of human robot uh, partnership and collaboration. Um, and it's co-authored with Julie Shaw out of MIT. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, been years in the making. Uh, Julie and I have been uh, working on this for a while with her background in, in academia and really the you know research lab and my work in, in industry, you know, bringing robotic solutions uh, out as products um, and really the crossover of robots from industrial applications where they were, you know, operated by experts, um, often in contr somewhat controlled environments, now into our everyday world where people who know nothing or about robots, um, you know, have to interact with, with these systems and, and what are some of the things we've learned from industrial applications we can apply uh, in consumer robots and then what are some of the new challenges that we need new solutions for. I don't want to give, you know, certainly we want people to read the book and and find all the different takeaways. But if you were to, what, what I guess when you went through the process of writing the book, what were some of the more, I don't know, maybe that unconventional takeaways that, that readers might find either surprising or, you know, maybe not what we would expect from once robots or 
become more of a part of our everyday lives? I mean, they already are uh, a bit, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the big themes in the book is, is that the, um, you know, solutions for, you know, what we call working robots, um, the, the solutions lie, you know, at the intersection of technology um, and society. Uh, that it's not the the solutions aren't only technical. You know, it's about how are these robots going to communicate with people? Um, how are they going to think in ways and behave in ways that people can predict? And um, and what's the responsibility of society to help support these robots to safely perform? You know, the the tasks that they're going to do. Um, and so that sometimes is surprising. And I think you know when we reveal and talk through a lot of the ways you know in air transportation or factory settings. You know, all the infrastructure um, and, you know, data sharing, um, you know, that goes into making those autonomous systems, you know, safe and effective. Uh, people, you know, a lot of that is often unseen and not talked about as much. Um, and so talking about how do we, you know, change, you know, instrument um, our world? How do we, you know, um, teach people how to interact with these robots? Um, so. Yeah, I think that that's sort of probably um, surprising, and, and the focus of the book is really kind of the intersection of the technology solutions and and the ways that we need to support these robots. Do Do you think that we are as a society we are sort of well prepared for um, you know increasing automation? Certainly, obviously, with autonomous vehicles, or or you know, it's it's really only one of the the early right the, in terms of consumer facing robotics products. Like, there's been sort of vacuum cleaners and, and I guess lawnmowers now and snowblowers, uh, but those sort of, that sort of cat class and, and AVs are kind of one of the first big, and I guess it depends on how you define robotics, but, but it's a much, it's a big step from, from a, a you know, a, a lawnmower or a, or a vacuum cleaner. Do, do you feel like we are as, as a society sort of well prepared for that, that, you know, the responsibilities and the challenges of, of adapting to this new uh, technology? Yeah, that's a great question, Ed. You know, I think, um, our mission with the book was to better prepare us uh, for these robots and, um, you know, to kind of lay out what are the responsibilities of, you know, regulators and, um, you know, um, industry, what, you know, as a technology developer, what, what's our responsibility beyond just making the robot as, as good as it can be? We also have to think about the, the human dimension of, you know, how these robots are going to interface with people. Um, so, yeah, I think that was our goal was to try to help close some of that gap um, of, you know, sort of where we are and where we need to be for, for these robots to really be an operation at scale. All right, I'm going to hijack this now. <laughs> um, it seems that um, the discussion of robots' role in society and our reaction to it um, has ebbed and flowed in positivity going back to the 20s with the movie Metropolis and the RUR robots. So has, has I guess I don't even know, has it, have we been on a constant trend in pop culture of robots getting more evil or has there been like oscillation in kind of pop culture depictions of robots? Um, yeah, so I don't know. Certainly um, the, the depiction of, of robots uh, goes through cycles, um, as, as you say, some, some positive, some negative. Um, but I think, you know, you can refer to it maybe as the hype curve. Um, we saw it with AVs, um, you know, where there was this big, you know, expectation that these uh, that AVs were ready, you know, five years ago to, uh, 
to deploy driverless in our cities and people expected it to happen overnight. Um, and I think what we see in the AV industry, which is true across robotics, is, is that these are complex systems. They're safety critical systems. Um, it, it's not like launching a website, right? It's, uh, there's a process that has to happen um, to develop these systems, to test and test and test and refine the design of these systems to really fill the gaps and make sure that they're fully safe before um, you scale them up. So it's not about just flipping the switch, the system's ready to go. It's, it's an, an evolution. You know, we saw this in factories. Um, robots started off in, in dedicated areas, fenced off from people. Um, now the, the fences are, are removed, but they still are, are fairly simple. Um, they follow, you know, uh, basically stickers on the floor to get from point A to point B, uh, rather than having a true perception system. Um, but people are working on how can you make them, you know, collaborate closely with people. So it's an evolution. And I think, um, you know, that, that we're somewhere on that journey. Um, you know, with AVs, we see, we have, you know, a, a robotaxi service in Las Vegas today for, for passengers, um, you know, public passengers to ride in. Um, that's a huge uh, step, I think, for, uh, for people to have that experience and to really start to understand the realities of this technology. And, and we've seen huge, uh, hugely positive response to that. You know, uh, 98% of our of our passengers have given it a five-star rating, um, and this is over a hundred thousand passengers. Um, and so that that's a part of the step is is to educate people, give people experience with these systems, and also for us to learn what works well, what doesn't, what, where what are the breakdowns, and what are the things that maybe make people uncomfortable, also, um, and use that to build the next generation. Um, so yeah, I think it's an evolution. I, I want to get into the the service um, in, in Las Vegas in a moment. But before we do, where on the spectrum of, you know, the, the easiest robotics application to the most difficult, where is, where are AVs on that spectrum in, in your view? And how close are we in that process of really truly seeing it in a, um, commercialized and a commercialized way in which we're experiencing fully driverless as opposed to, you know, the human safety, you know, operator behind the wheel, which is a lot of what we're seeing right now. Um, mm -hmm. Where are we on that timeline? Not just for emotional, but just in the industry from your view. Yeah. So, you know, I think we're, we're starting to see um, some significant steps on that path. You know, I think the path to get to fully driverless at, at scale is, is a journey. Um, you know, again, these are safety critical systems. So it's, uh, there are many steps to getting there, but I, I feel if you look across the industry uh, that it really seems like the tide is turning, you know, some significant steps are being made. Multiple uh, players are, you know, are demonstrating driverless. Um, you know, we're seeing that, you know, the, the realization, you know, the industry is becoming much smarter, right? It's, uh, we've realized that it's, it's no longer a startup game, right? There's significant capital uh, that's needed. There's strong partnerships uh, that are required. Um, there's, you know, focused development and testing that's going to take longer than originally expected. Um, so, yeah, I, it's certainly a journey, but I feel like, again, you can see the momentum happening and building across the industry. And, and I think um, we're getting close to 
to starting to see over the next couple of years, you know, in, in major cities being able to um, access a driverless robo-taxi service. So what, what has allowed that to happen? I mean, I've heard various viewpoints, but in, in your view, has there been in the last couple of years specific technical breakthroughs that have allowed so many companies to make progress or is it just time and effort equals progress? Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, many things have gotten us to this point, but, um, you know, certainly I think, again, this uh, realization that it's going to take significant capital and investment and that the, um, you know, I think one of the key steps is, was the realization that um, the integration of the AV system with the vehicle uh, needed a tighter partnership and, and needed to be, you know, really designed as a single system. And so we're seeing those very close partnerships across, you know, AV companies and um, and OEMs uh, happening. And, you know, I think that's that's a major part. These systems are, you know, they're power hungry, uh, they're complex. And, and so you really have to couple the AV uh, system with the vehicle. Um, but, you know, in addition, again, I think there is a level of experience. Obviously, sensors get better every year. Um, but there's exposing these systems to, you know, wide range of scenarios uh, and really, you know, learning about where solutions, you know, do well and where they don't do well and, 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 you know, filling those, those gaps over time. So, so you don't have a, a background necessarily in the auto industry itself, sort of more of a, from the robotics side of it. Um, and, and, aeronautics we're just talking about- and astronautics, which is where I want to go. <laughs> okay. Well, before we get there, I just, you, you mentioned this, this relationship and, and sort of earlier about, um, you know, this isn't really a startup game anymore. Um, I think it's a really interesting vein and, and I kind of want you to, if you can dig into a little more and maybe through the lens of, you know, uh, as someone who, who didn't come from sort of a, a traditional automotive background, um, you know, what has that, that relation, what have you learned from that relationship? What have you learned from sort of having to work much more closely with the sort of automotive side of it? Because oftentimes it, it seems like there's this sort of, you know, well, you're either a, a tech person or a, or an auto person and there's some sort of battle between them and one has to win and the other has to lose. And, and in reality, it seems like, you know, uh, uh, the smart people get together and they learn from each other. Right. So, so I'm just curious, what's, what has that been like? What is that exposure uh, to, to auto automotive thinkers and doers, uh, like, yeah, that's a great question. And, and there actually are more, um, more things in common with the automotive industry and the aeronautics and astronautics industry, uh, than, than you may think. Um, so I think because I come from that world, as opposed to just pure robotics, um, you know, there, there are more, um, you know, there, I've been really happy to see a lot of the, the same standards and um, rigor that goes into building an automotive system uh, that you don't always see with a um, with other other types of uh, consumer robotics. Um, so I think, yeah, we, you know, that that level of, um, you know, of rigor that goes into designing the system, um, developing a safety case, um, you know, going through full verification and validation, um, really, you know, seeing a product through all the, the steps in the life cycle um, and following, you know, rigorous um, standards and processes uh, is really, you know, a key thing that the automotive industry obviously has uh, has 
figured out and it does very well. And so combining that with the innovation that you need for AV um, is is important to, to figure out that, you know, that intersection of being agile and nimble and fast moving, but also being very rigorous, having using strong, you know, system engineering um, processes and, you know, seeing things all the way through very rigorous uh, testing. I think, you know, that combination is important. Um, but also going back to the automotive, you know, I think, again, the integration of the AV systems with the vehicle is, uh, is, is no small challenge. I think, you know, early in the industry, people thought you could just, you know, add sensor sensors and put a really big computer in the trunk and you'd be ready to go. Uh, but it's much more complicated than that. And um, there are a lot of trade-offs to be made uh, across the, the whole, you know, power architecture. Um, and, and so that's, you know, there's processing already that happens on vehicles when it's not an AV. And so how do you combine that with an AV system to have efficient compute across, again, your whole system? And, and that's a major, you know, system engineering activity um, that, that requires, again, that close partnership. So prior to joining Newtonomy and Motional, which is now Motional, uh, you were at this company called Draper Laboratory. And there's a really interesting section <laughs> where it says you worked on human-centered engineering uh, with DOD and DARPA. So I'm, I'm curious because if we go backwards in time, you, did, you obviously did a lot of work on systems which require more human input than selecting a destination. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, – did that include, uh, since, you, since you worked in aviation and aeronautics, did you work uh, on systems like um, uh, like parallel automation systems, like the Airbus interface or any of like military aircraft, which have like very high levels of augmented um, uh, human support, pilot support? Yeah. So one of my um, early uh, first projects uh, when I was at Draper Laboratory was on a an autonomous flight manager for uh, returning to uh, to the moon. Um, so there are a lot of parallels actually with with what we're doing in AVs. Um, so in this case, uh, you know, NASA had a, a goal. Of course, it was several presidents ago. So it all never, you know, never, it changed, morphed over time uh, what the goal was. But the goal at the time was to send people um, to the South Pole where you had on the craters of the, of, you know, the, um, the rim of the craters, you have infinite light. And so really great for, for, you know, solar power. Uh, the problem is you pair that with the, uh, the depths of the crater, which ha- are extreme darkness. And so the human eye, you can't, um, you know, look out the window and find a good, place to land like you could uh, during Apollo. And so um, so we had LIDAR. <laughs> we had a, a, a robust sensor set on board um, that we were developing and, and building up what we called an autonomous flight manager to be able to process that data on board in real time uh, because you want to carry as little fuel as, as, um, as you need. So you have about, you know, 45 seconds from when you first see your landing area until you're going to touch down. And of course, lives are on the line and this place has never been surveyed in in great detail. Um, So, yeah, so certainly um, that was, you know, one of my first projects, but but I've worked on, um, while I was there, I worked on many different um, applications, a lot of soldier systems as well, where you had um, different uh, sensors and robotics coming into a single uh, system that you were synthesizing this information and, and providing, um, you know, uh, situational awareness from. So, yeah, I've, I've covered a lot of ground and, and really a lot of different domains. Um, I found that actually pretty um, 
rewarding in my career to see similarities across these different uh, applications. And I think in working on this book um, with with Julie, same thing. She's spent a lot of her time in uh, industrial robotics. Um, and so, but when we would talk, there were so many similarities across uh, across these different domains. So a lot of the the challenges, you know, are, are more similar than you might think. And um, and there have been solutions that have been sorted out in say aerospace applications. Again, we cover a lot of that in the book um, that we can lift and, and apply um, in AVs and other domains. Things that by you know looking at a different problem, you, you have a different perspective. And, um, and so you might come up with a different solution that, again, might have relevance um, elsewhere. It, it just seems that like the conversation on artificial intelligence robotics, it seems to exist, again, in the public uh, eye on like a, a very a single continuum, good or bad. <laughs> and that the media and pop culture have not done a good job of explaining that there are different ways to deploy technology to reach the same end goal. What, I mean, I, I imagine your book is a step in the direction of trying to explain that. Like how, what, how, what else should the media be doing or how can we improve the level of discourse? Yeah, I think, you know, what we've seen um, is by, uh, providing, you know, exposing people who don't have experience with this technology by giving them an opportunity to experience it really changes their perspective. Um, so, and, you know, we, we had a, a survey recently that where we um, asked people, you know, um, for their response on their, you know, willingness to, to use this technology. And we found that, you know, for, for those that have experience with it, they were much more willing, um, you know, to use it in the future. And so I think finding ways like our, our, you know, pilot um, in Las Vegas on the Lyft network where any person can come into Las Vegas and open their Lyft app and call, you know, an autonomous uh, ride that, you know, it might sound simple, but it's actually very profound in, in changing the discourse, um, giving people that exposure uh, to see it firsthand, to see that certainly while n no technology is ever perfect, um, you know, our focus at Motional and I think hopefully across the AV industry is, is to develop a safe system. Um, so there's never zero human supervision, right? These systems will have remote operators that will monitor uh, remote operation centers that will monitor the fleet. And if there's an issue, um, we'll step in and help the AV. Uh, so it's it's about having a safe system that, that can um, handle failures, that can handle unexpected situations gracefully um, and, you know, be able to, again, provide that, that safe, um, you know, safe ride. Um, so back to the Las Vegas service. So this originally started as a pilot with Lyft that was right around CES and it was, you know, and has continued to be, although it's greatly expanded um, with a human safety operator behind the wheel. And it started out with the BMW five series. I think that now you have some uh, Pacifica hybrids in there as well, but you'll be now transitioning um, starting very soon to uh, fully driverless service. So explain to me what that looks like and how that is going to unfold. Um, my experience has been, and I think we've all ridden in them, um, is that the human would take over for parking lots and going through the valet areas in the casinos. 
how is that going to work if you don't have a human in the in the physical loop, um, meaning being in the vehicle itself? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And um, yeah, stepping back maybe before I get to that example yeah. to mm-hmm. answer the broader question. Um, yeah, so we recently announced, uh, I think last just last month, that um, you know we we've received our driverless permit in Las Vegas, and uh, you'll hear more about our our activity there soon. Um, and also, uh, we we recently announced um, a uh, a new partnership with expanded partnership, I should say, with Lyft uh, to deploy our first driverless robo taxi on their network uh, in 2023. So this is the the first and um, you know largest uh, driverless robo taxi partnership. Uh, for, with a ride-hailing network uh, to date, and uh, something we're excited about. We, we feel like it's really important that we have this partnership now, and we work together to work through exactly the issues that you describe. Um, so, you know, you're correct that some casinos today, driving through the parking lot or or getting through the, uh, you know, all the amusements that lead up to the the, the entrance. Um, yeah, the safety operator takes over. Um, and so we have to work through that. We have to work through what's our, what is our, um, you know, the area we're going to service and what will those pick up and drop off points look like? And they, they probably all won't be the same. Um, you know, there will probably be some that, um, that are more structured, uh, certain, static location and some that are more fluid where maybe, um, the driveway is, is a little easier to navigate. Um, so, yeah, you're you're hitting on I think a really good point, which is back to the book. You know what to expect. It's it's not going to necessarily uh, be um, you know the same as as a human um, driver picking you up to start with. It will get better over time. It will get more flexible. It will scale to a broader set of um, situations. But you know we're focused on really launching this um, this driverless robo taxi product with uh, with Lyft. Um, you know as soon as we can so that we can, again, get broader exposure of people to the system. And, and so that means sometimes putting in place things like a, a more structured uh, pickup drop-off scenario, start there and expand it from, from that. Um, but we feel like that's an important step along, along the path of this journey um, to, again, expand uh, the, the access to driverless systems. So I just one more question before I hand it over to the rest of uh, Ed and Alex. 2023 is the target date for this. And I'm just wondering why that date? I mean, what is special about that or what needs to happen in the next two years? Because timelines haven't always worked out for every company, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Particularly a few years ago when everyone was targeting 2019 and 2020, and that has now passed. So why 2023? Yeah. So, you know, for us, we really do try to stick to our dates. I think we have a pretty good um, track record of that. Uh, We, um, you know, we've had it as a a goal for a while in 2020 to have our first driverless system. Um, That was, and that's a, you know, it's really an internal milestone for us. Uh, We felt like it was really important before we get to a commercial product that's driverless that we have, we take a first step and we have, uh, go through the full end-to-end process uh, on a smaller, you know, a smaller scale, smaller ODD, or for those, uh, you know, uh, simpler roads, I should say, simpler intersections. Um, so, 
so we, you know, we are on track to achieving that um, in 2020. And, and so that gives us confidence. You know, we, we've gone through the process end to end of taking a platform, building it up, again, um, developing the full safety architecture that can handle, you know, has redundancy built into it, has the ability to detect and and safely handle, you know, a wide range of failures and faults. We've done the full hazard analysis and, and provided a protective layer, you know, on top of our um, our primary system. And we've gone through the full validation process. Uh, and, you know, I think for us getting to a safe uh, robo-taxi um, driverless system, you know, it's we, we take we try to take those extra steps um, to to go from the fig to the figurative crosswalk and cross at the crosswalk rather than than jaywalking um, and shortcutting that process. And um, and so that's what we did getting to this moment of our first driverless system. And and so now that we've you know kind of exercised those muscles, we built out the the process for how to do it. Um, you know, now it's about scaling it to you know broader set of environments, set of you know context, higher speeds, um, additional types of intersections, and so on. Um, and so we feel like we have a fairly clear path of what it's going to take um, to get us from where we are today to that first um, driverless product. So it, it's so cool seeing you know all these companies now start to make uh, you know announcements about about that step to driverless and and it really just shows you know that that uh, you know perceptions may have been going up and down but uh, progress never stopped uh, it continues um, but but I like to get as many different perspectives from different people and different organizations about that decision to go driverless because I feel like it's sometimes it it, it it's a tough issue because. On the one hand, we actually had a guest once tell us that it's basically like a trade secret, like sort of how you calculate and 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 draw the line about about uh, when it's safe enough to make that you know. So, but it's also so important to public trust and 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 to acceptance of this technology. And I think when you ride fully driverless vehicle for the first time, that you know it can sound like some of us just like trust, 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 and it's like a, a buzzword. But it really matters when you're in a, a fully driverless vehicle for the first time. Can you, as much as you can, like, uh, uh, yeah, w- walk us through the some of the specifics, uh, again, to the extent possible, of, of that decision of when yeah. you say, okay, now we're ready, now we go driverless. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, for us, it's not a trade secret. I think, um, you know, we're going to be publishing our VSSA here um, in January and and share the process that we go through. And, um, you know, for us, it's it's really important that it's, um, it's not our opinion. It's not some secret, you know, decision um, that happens in the shadows. It's, uh, we, we actually have an external assessor that we use, um, who is independent, unbiased, uh, and they review every step along the way. They review our design. They review our development. Um, if we make changes to the architecture, they review those changes. And then they ultimately review, you know, our test results. Um, and they are the ones who tell us when we're ready to go driverless. So for us, again, safety transcends, you know, um, schedule and and competition and we're we want to do it right and um you know we're not willing to make any compromises so um yeah for for us you know we're very open about our process to um to making that decision to go driverless and again we'll we'll share more in the vssa awesome i have to ask just really quickly um where do you find the person to do that? Right. Like who like like how how do you find uh, the person that you're basically putting in uh you know 
I, I assume to some extent is, is almost like what the final say or, or who's just checking your work on that. Um, what kind of backgrounds, uh, what kind of traits, what are you looking for in that person? And Yeah, we'll share more about that um, very soon when we share the results of all, all of our preparation and, and ultimate um, driverless testing. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we look for industry expert. Um, so an outside group who, who knows the standards well, who, um, who has the right expertise to, uh, understand the, you know, the requirements that are out there, um, the industry best practices, um, and they have their own, um, you know, well formulated process for assessing and, and making those, those key, um, decisions. Previously, as you touched on, you were focused on a different application of robotics. So why did you make this jump over to, or I shouldn't say a jump, but why did you decide to go over to emotional and work on specifically the application of, you know, autonomous vehicles um, in terms of like a robotaxi type of experience, as opposed to what you had been working on before, was it, um, you know, I'd like to know how you made that decision. Was it just that it was the most exciting one at the time? Or was there something else that drove you to make that jump over to emotional? Yeah, so um, the book actually played a big part in that, um, in that change in my career. Um, So you know, I was watching from the sidelines, you know, I was in working in industrial applications, uh, creating solutions for very different problems. Um, and I was watching this hype happen and everyone expect, um, you know, robo taxis to, to be on the roads in, you know, 2018. Um, and I saw some of the, you know, same mistakes uh, being made across different, you know, wide range of robotics um, applications and consumer products that, that I saw that, that I learned about and had studied and, and had, you know, worked on in these industrial applications. And, and so, you know, that's ultimately, you know, we, Julie and I started working on this book to say, you know, figure out how can we share some of these lessons so we don't have to relearn them the hard way. A lot of lives have been lost uh, when we learn these hard lessons in aerospace applications, for example, um, when similar technology was deployed for the first time. Um, and so, you know, that was our, our mission was to try to share um, these insights and try to help the consumer industry not make the same, uh, you know, not fall into the same traps. Um, and so I, I'd been thinking about this deeply, studying it, um, really trying to figure out how to share. Um, I'd given some talks, um, a lot of, a lot of uh, the, you know, message was received really well. Um, and then, um, I started talking with Carl and, uh, you know, at, at Motional, uh, there's a real focus on people first. Um, and that just really resonated with me and this idea of putting safety first. Um, it just, it, it, you know, connected, uh, with me and, and my passion and my interests and, and my expertise. Um, so I, I really wasn't intending to go into robo taxi. I wasn't out searching for it. It sort of found me, um, you know, through this book project and then through, again, the connection, um, that, uh, I had with, with how, uh, Carl and at the time Aptiv was, uh, was thinking about, you know, developing this technology. Um, and so, you know, this idea of people first, I think, you know, if you look at the start of my career, I was thinking about one-to-one, you know, human to robot or human to autonomous system interaction and how to design that well. Um, but over time, that's shifted to looking at, you know, the 
it, every robot, you know, every AV out there, it, it interacts with people all the time. The relationship changes, though, because the system is more capable. It doesn't need as much direct interaction with, with a person, with a, an operator, um, but it still has a supervisor, some, someone, somewhere. Um, it still has to interact with, in the book, what we call bystanders, you know, pedestrians who are going to cross in front of it, who, who you know, don't know anything about its intent or, or its decision-making process. Um, and so emotional, we're looking at this, you know, we call it expressive robotics. How can our AV communicate with pedestrians and cyclists and other drivers in ways that, that are natural for those people to understand? Um, so maybe there's a, a, you know, there's one way to, um, to slow the vehicle down. Um, and, you know, and there might be another way that a person might perceive in a way that's um, easier for them to predict whether the car is is going to you know move out of the way in time or slow down in time. Um, and so you know we're looking at all those dimensions. So for me, over time, my interests have evolved from again one to one person to to robot interaction and control to you know one to many. Many people are, are interact in in you know more loosely coupled ways, but um, but still, you know, that inter- interaction is really critical to the safety of these systems and the effectiveness of these systems. Um, and so that's, I think, ultimately, you know, what led me uh, to, to this role at Motional. You mentioned uh, a moment ago when you were writing the book, talking about um, traps that and, and helping the, the consumer uh, facing industry avoid those traps. What traps is the AV industry today um, at in danger of falling into that you would like to see them avoid? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, today we require AVs to kind of uh, have the full capability to navigate our dynamic and um, unstructured uh, or semi-structured world uh, on, on its own. Um, I think there are ways that, you know, we can add infrastructure to help AVs to, to make the problem easier and, you know, for the robot to solve and therefore more robust. Um, so if you look at um, aerospace, you know, there was a system developed uh, back in the early 2000s called TCAS, Traffic Collision Avoidance System. And it's now on every commercial aircraft. So, you know, when, when aircraft are um, on a collision course, uh, there's a secondary system that, um, that's looking for that and, and can detect that and can ultimately issue a resolution back to, to the aircraft um, to, you know, usually it's for one to climb and one to descend. And, and they easily and very reliably and robustly, uh, you know, avoid that um, collision every time there was there was a problem with the rollout of this technology uh, where um, there there wasn't clear responsibility of, of who the pilot should listen to the autonomous system on board or the outside um, air traffic controller and unfortunately there was you know a collision course where the air traffic controller gave the opposite uh, instructions as the TCAS system and, and the two air one pilot followed the air traffic controller, one pilot followed the um, onboard TCAS system and the two uh, aircraft collided midair um, and all the lives were lost. So that, um, we don't, it's very different in the AV world. Uh, we don't have that same, you know, air traffic control type uh, supervision, but um, but we are going to have these systems that, that encounter each other and, um, and there are ways for them to communicate with each other. There are ways for the environment to communicate. So we see some of this technology being developed, you know, V to X, um, 
you know, in, in other, other examples, um, you know, some startups are, are uh, standing up digital backbones that these systems can communicate into. Um, so I think when we see that, you know, that's just going to help make the progress go faster and, and again, provide additional um, safety nets um, that can help, uh, can help it, the AV industry. If I'm understanding you correctly, so you're saying not necessarily that there should be this other extra layer, but that we that the industry as a whole needs to decide what that default communication will be so that there's sort of like an industry, um, maybe not manual, but so you don't fall into that trap of a pilot listening to an air traffic controller versus the secondary system. Or is it that you're saying that there absolutely should be support for infrastructure um, in and around cities? And we've seen that in Las Vegas, um, some infrastructure um, added on there. I just want to make sure I understand your point. What 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 are you, I guess, endorsing? Yeah, so I think infrastructure helps to make the problem um, easier, and again, the solutions more robust. So I think um, we are seeing standards uh, start to be developed, um, and I think that will evolve again as this technology uh, scales to more and more complex environments. Um, but if we want to see this, you know, scale faster, um, then I think infrastructure is is one avenue that can can help uh, speed up progress. Alex, uh, I'm curious your point of view on <laughs> on the use of terms like autopilot for ADAS systems because so many people love so many users of it and i'm one of them love or place confidence in it because the term is analogous to an aviation term but without an analogous version of tcas for the ground for vehicles that have even partial human um control uh the analogies all collapse because a, a safety system for human operated vehicles with partial automation would require two analogous technologies not just the in-vehicle tech that is Tesla Autopilot, but also an external system like TCAS for the ground, which it, I think, if I'm reading between the lines correctly, until we reach a level of ubiquity for any kind of V2V system, we're not going to see anything analogous to TCAS between human-operated vehicles. Am I? Yes. Yes, I worry. I, in some ways, I worry more about um, level three technology than I do level four or level five, um, because of that. Because there's this idea that you know you kind of um, you get a pass as the technology developer because you have the human driver there to provide that safety net. And um, yeah, for someone who's studied uh, how people you know interface with autonomous systems uh, for a long time, we know that. Uh, when people when there is an autonomous system that's covering most of the operation, um, the person starts to check out. You become complacent. You lose situational awareness, and just at the moment that you're needed to step in and take over, because you know, yeah, a, a car or a, a truck pulls out in front of you and blends in with the sky, so your sensors can't see it. Um, is the moment that the person is unable to step in and help. Um, and so certainly I think that um, that's a risky um, path to go down. And, and I agree with you that um, until we have something like adding that ability to, um, you know, to detect other vehicles, other, other actors in your environment, um, it's, 
yeah, it's uh, not something that anybody should be uh, relying on too heavily. So in your book, you do, you talk about the difference between hard and soft automation, the difference between Boeing and Airbus. Almost every passenger vehicle sold today is uses a soft automation system, a, a form of series automation. Um, and the only manufacturer I'm aware of that's discussed a parallel or hard, hard automation system is Toyota with what they call, the, I guess, Guardian is a form of that, although it's not yet deployed. I mean, do you, I think we would all kind of agree that level four, as we know it, is coming. Do you foresee more hard automation systems like what Airbus has being deployed in passenger vehicles? Um, yeah, I think, you know, um, that's a good question. And I think over time, um, we'll have to see how, how that plays out. Um, but certainly, you know, it comes back to this idea of people first and, and needing to really consider, you know, the role of the people who interface with these autonomous systems in the, in how you design the autonomous system. So whether it's hard automation or soft automation, you have to think about, you know, who's going to interact with the system, who's going to control it, who's going to influence it, who's going to supervise it. Um, and that needs to inform, you know, how you set up the system. You know, if you look at the difference between Airbus and Boeing, you know, there were there were core philosophical differences, right? So Boeing was designing for um, higher trained um pilots, you know, pilots that have much more experience and, and deeper training. Airbus was designing for, you know, for you know, parts of the world that there isn't as much training for the pilots. Um, and so there was, you know, a, a higher reliance on the automation over, over the human pilot input. Um, when we, and also, you know, there's a big difference. Pilots are, are experts. Um, so there's, we're talking about a spectrum of training, but overall they still have a tremendous amount of training. Um, and so, you know, a driver is is maybe an expert at, at driving, but might not know anything about um, how the level three system works, for example, uh, or might have very little understanding of that. Um, pilots train on their, you know, on how the flight management system works, how the, how the autopilot works, what are the failure modes, how are, what are the ways that it can break down, what are the things you need to look for. They have, you know, rigorous processes to monitor for some of these failure modes. So, it depends, you know, the automation, I think, depends on who we're talking about. Is it someone, yeah, in, a, in a, a driver who's monitoring this system or is it a supervisor of a level four system that's off in a remote operation center watching, you know, many vehicles um, and, you know, really figuring out that right way to structure the tasks, um, you know, to ensure that you, again, keep whatever person it is involved enough so that they're able to help when they're needed. And they're able to catch, you know, the times when they aren't needed. So I have a um, a question. Maybe it's a little on the on the self serving side, but um, I'm I'm really curious about your your answer to this because uh, it's an issue that I feel like I, I end up having to deal with quite a bit. And and that's just sort of the, the the question of you know, and I think it's a little bit related to you know the the hype cycle and sort of the sense of disillusionment that was sort of feeling and uh, people were feeling for a while and. Um, you know, in, in the interest of, of helping get out of that, um, what is like the simplest way that you explain, like why it's necessary to um, deploy autonomous vehicles as a level four fleet? Um, also sort of like using LIDAR um, and, and yeah, geofences and, and, and pre-mapping. I mean, these things 
are sort of held up as, you know, this is going to prevent you from scaling or, you know, various other sort of sort of issues. And and again, I, I just struggle. I can I'm I, I actually like discussing it. it's a fascinating topic, but it's struggle to I struggle to like kind of pull all that into a a simple sort of and maybe that maybe there's no way to, but I'm just kind of I'd love to hear your shot at at sort of wrapping that up in a in a concise sort of way if possible. Yeah, so uh, you know, I think um anytime you're, you know, trying to do something for the first time, um you you try to pull in as many, you know, um tools as you can to achieve that. Um and so that's what, that's what we're doing in, in the AV industry is trying to achieve level 4. Um and so, you know, in order to, again, it's a it's a um, safety critical system. And so it, it can't make mistakes. Um, and so that's why we add in, you know, a full, you know, uh, multimodality, uh, sensor system that has 360 degree coverage. That's why we have, um, the mapping. So mapping always, you know, you know, where to look, you know, what to look for, you know, where the traffic light is going to be, you know, that you're at a stop sign, you're not relying on your sensors to tell you that information. So again, it gives you that protective layer. Um, and so, you know, all of that I think is is required to do this for the first time. Geofencing, you know, so that you know, you know, you've you've tested um, on these roads before. You know, your system performs reliably and repeatedly, you know, on these um, on these roads. I think that's a part of the, the first step of of you know launching this as a commercial system. But certainly. Um, then we have to start thinking about how do you re- reduce cost? How do you pull costs out of the system? How do you scale more more rapidly? Um, and I think all of us in the industry are looking at that in parallel. Um, but I think it would be irresponsible to not have those safety measures in place uh, for the first launch of these systems. Um, I think it's it's a step down the road. You know, safety has to come first, and then uh, we can look at optimizing costs and and refining the system to pull out some of the some of those limitations that you mentioned. And and just one final uh, follow-up. I know we're running out of time, but I just want to um, like, you know, and and I know everyone always asks the sort of timeline question and predicting when different stages will be met. I'm not really trying to ask that, but just, uh, you know, could you, could you give a sort of sense of, of what to expect from AVs in terms of how they will scale? Right. Because, again, I mean, in tech, you have some things, you know, it gets invented and like almost overnight, it's like ubiquitous everywhere. Um, You know, AVs are clearly somewhere uh, on this side of that. Uh, But but kind of just, you know, in a ballpark sense, how should we be thinking about, you know, how that is going to increasingly become or move towards ubiquity? Yeah, you know, my expectation is over the next couple of years, we'll start to see driverless robotaxi um, available in limited locations. um, And it'll scale slowly to start, you know, it'll go from one to two cities, uh, two cities to four. Um, But then I think, you know, it's it starts to become, um, you know, exponential at some point. And um, we start to figure it out as an industry, you know, that it's, it's, you know, a little bit of the phases of the learning that have to happen right now. It's how can we, you know, ensure safe operation of these systems? And then how can we deploy them and, and operate them, you know, um, as a fleet uh, with paying passengers? And and then the next step will be how to, how to um, you know, optimize for, for scale. Um, so I think it'll be slow to start. Um, and then it will at some point ramp up and then ubiquity after that. Great. 
Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks again to our audience for listening to another episode of the Atana cast. And I hope you join us again.